is the curiosity as to where we are, what we are. Existence, the physical universe, is basically playful. Welcome to the Curious Humans podcast. I'm your host, Johnny Miller. Hello, Curious Humans. I think this might just be the most potent and fascinating conversation that I've had to date on this podcast. It's certainly an episode that I'll be re-listening to myself, likely a couple of times. In this episode, I spoke with Mr. Eric Godsey. As you'll hear, he's not only articulate with some incredibly powerful ideas to share, but has genuine courage and an unshakable orientation towards truth. And it left me excited to dive deeper into his writing and some of the books that he mentioned. We covered a lot of ground, as you'll see by the lengthy show notes included for this episode. And some of the questions and topics that I found especially intriguing were his view on the broken system of Western medicine, his perspective on a psychological model called internal family systems. We touch on why it's worth paying more attention to our dreams and the Jungian book on mature masculine archetypes that changed the way he shows up in a relationship. I asked him about a journal prompt that he would prescribe to someone who is looking at the world in despair right now and feeling overwhelmed with the crises that are unfolding. He also mentioned the LSD microdosing protocol that helped him to get more in touch with his feelings and just so much more. Basically, I think you're gonna freaking love this conversation, but that's more than enough for me. And as always, if you appreciate this conversation, please go ahead and share it with someone who you think would enjoy it as well. Now, without further ado, enjoy this feast of a conversation with Mr. Eric Godsey. Well, hello there, Mr. Eric Godsey. It is a genuine pleasure to have your meat suit on this podcast after literally years <laughs> <laughs> of following of following your writing. And I believe your podcast was called Meta Programming back in the day, if if memory serves. But I'm I'm just deeply appreciative. You're one of the OGs. <laughs> yeah, because it used to be the Meta Programming podcast, and now it's the Myths That Make Us podcast. But I know right. that you're one of the originals if you know about the Meta Programming. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm I'm just so deeply appreciative of your of your lens on the world and the gifts that seem to be coming through you right now. So, how are you feeling in this moment? In three words, in my Tao. Hmm. Nice. So, I I like to begin these conversations with a question that I feel like will become a beacon of sorts and kind of cast a light on the the uncharted map of the territory that will unfold. And the question is, were you exceptionally curious as a child? And if so, can you tell me a story about something you were curious about? What's interesting is I feel I would be embellishing if I said I was extremely curious, but also what's interesting is I don't have access to anyone else's subjective childhood experience. So I this is it's impossible to compare mm. but also the essence of being a child is that you are curious um i'm trying to think of a specific unique memory that i have about being curious 
And what's interesting is like the thing from my childhood that I, that I personally enjoy the most when I reflect on it, which feels like that had to have been God was what Mm. brought me to reading Greek and Norse mythology as a child, Mm. but it wasn't curiosity. It was like my sense of honor. And basically the situation was when I was in third grade, uh, this boy and this girl who later I found out were both homosexual and because they felt outed or like outcasts that they bonded together and they created this um, Egyptian mythology club that mm. they didn't let anyone else join. Mm. And in my like, that's not fair. I started a Greek mythology club and I started reading like <clears throat> Greek myths and I wanted people to like, you know, join me to rebel against them but nobody joined and like that urge was what got me started but the moment i started reading i just became completely enthralled by it and i was probably like eight reading greek myths and learning about like rape and murder and all this stuff and my parents were cool with it and they actually gave me more books to Mm. read and that was a integral part of my childhood that now serves me very well as an adult doing what I do. Mm. It's interesting that you say that because the the follow-up question that I, I tend to ask and one that I've heard you ask your own podcast guests many times is the potent question of what was a formative tale or myth that most resonated with you growing up? So I'd like to turn this question back on you and ask what was the specific maybe Greek myth that younger Eric most resonated with? And specifically, what was it about the narrative that really resonated with you? Yeah, so what's interesting is I can feel that from Greek mythology, the myth that resonated with me the most was the myth of Prometheus. And I can Mm. really get into that. Mm. And I found that the myth in Norse mythology that most captured me was basically every story about Odin. Mm. And then the Disney movie that most captured me was The Lion King. But the (laughs) essence of the Prometheus story, so there were Titans before there were gods. And the king of the Titans was Kronos. And Kronos was an asshole, and he would eat his babies. And uh, Zeus was one of the last children that uh, his wife, I forget her name, um, I I just reread it like a couple of weeks ago maybe but no um the wife of chronos uh her she was zeus's mom she was dope but Mm -hmm. she saw that her children kept being eaten so she hid zeus and zeus was able to eventually grow up overthrow kill chronos and then freed all of his brothers and sisters from his stomach Mm -hmm. and the new gods were the gods but there were two titans that were allowed to like stay in in olympus and the rest of the titans were cast down into tartarus which were which was like the hell it wasn't really hades it was this like underground cage that they had to stay in anyways the two titans that were allowed to stay were prometheus and epimetheus and prometheus means forethought and epimetheus means afterthought and the myth is that zeus tasked those two brothers to give all of the like special qualities that Hephaestus made, who was the forge god, um, to give them to all the creatures of the earth. And because Epimetheus was the older brother, he got to go first. 
and he emptied out the entire bag of like skills and weapons to all the animals and didn't leave anything left over for humans. So he gave like wings and claws and fangs and poison and all these things to all the animals and there was nothing left over. So Prometheus was like, I got to give something to humans. And so he basically tricked Zeus to steal fire and then gave fire to mankind. Fire was something that only the gods were allowed to have. And the humans got so strong to the point that Zeus destroyed them all. And then that's kind of the Greek version of the flood myth. But Mm. that was the one that captured me the most. And to be honest, it was because um, like I used to always have fantasies as a kid before going to bed at night. I would imagine every night I did this for years. I would imagine basically like um, a alien from like Dragon Ball Z. So like a Vegeta or something would Mm -hmm. attack my school and would try to like hurt somebody. And I would always jump in the way and protect the attractive girl who I was, you know, attracted mm. to at that point from this Vegeta alien. Mm. And he would just beat me up, but I would never like actually like stay down. And mm. by him fighting me, I would realize, oh my God, I'm a Saiyan too. And then I would fight. And then um, <clears throat> the archetype of, I will give my everything to protect the thing that I love is I think what I resonated with as a child in the Prometheus story. Mm, wow. That's, that's really powerful. And it makes me want to revisit, I think Stephen Fry did like a retelling of the Greek myths that I am about halfway through and mm. it makes me want to pick that up again. Um, it's, it's interesting. I'm I encourage it. It's, it's, they're so, they're so good. And I'm currently, or I've recently finished rereading one of my favorite myths, which was, uh, the Wizard of Earthsea, uh, the, the quartet by Ursula Le Guin. And it's essentially about the journey of a young wizard named Ged who learns to wield his powers and he unleashes this powerful shadow from the underworld, which he then spends most of the story running away from until he eventually has the courage to pause and turn around and then embrace and name it. And this story I was thinking about before we jumped on here, it's, I think it's in many ways what I wanted to talk to you about and my sense is that many listeners and maybe the the majority of humans alive today are sensing and feeling this collective shadow rising up into our conscious awareness yep. in really fucking ugly ways and and so with this in mind i'd be really curious to hear what do you feel like is the invitation of this collectively painful moment in humanity's journey and it's, it's almost like the stories that define many of our lives up until this point are seemingly crumbling and we're entering the belly of the whale in the hero's journey. And so what are individuals to do at this moment or what actions of courageous curiosity could we take? That's a big question. <laughs> yeah, so there's a lot there that's beautiful. The first thing I want to articulate is I love the phrase courageous curiosity. I really like that. Thank you. Mm. Um, mm. The other thing, to set, to set the stage for everybody, These myths, the one thing that Carl Jung, the psychologist, brought to me that completely changed the way that I see the world is all of these myths, the reason they've lasted for thousands of years, and some of these stories are tens of thousands of years old, Mm -hmm. is because they symbolically represent universal truths of what happens in the human psyche. And what you just articulated about that magician story, that is a universal pattern that a psyche will go through 
always. And that's why it's mm-hmm. remembered. And you touched on the hero's journey. The hero's journey seems to be the core mythological story that gives light to the eternal patterns in every individual psyche on the process of transforming, which essentially, if you're going to do anything dope in this life, it will come from the fact that you have to transform. Mm-hmm. And you talked about this idea of going into the belly of the whale. So one thing to offer people is in order for you to interact with the world at all that provides you with stable emotions, you create stories. Your stories of the world are not the world. There's a type of philosophy called pragmatism that is my favorite. And the core idea is that you don't have the biological apparatus to perceive the actual world. It's impossible. Mm -hmm. You create a model of the world that is useful to you. And so the idea is that you cannot know objective truth. Therefore, everything that you think is a truth is really a tool that you act out in the world. And if it works, you keep it. And if it doesn't, you have to either continue to suffer or you transform it or you put it down. Mm -hmm. And to go into the belly of the whale is a mythological representation of the current story that you are telling about yourself and about the world. You're getting feedback from the world. It is not working. And the reason that that's so destabilizing is that if your story breaks, you have no reference point. You don't know how to be. You don't know what to do. And when the human psyche doesn't know what to do, anxiety, depression, fear, overwhelm, schizophrenia, things like that are what come up. Mm -hmm. But what's beautiful and what the hero's journey really articulates is that the part of you that creates stories, the part of you that creates worlds, is always has the capability of making a new world. But in order to do that, you have to reintegrate, you have to recreate, you have to reconstruct, you have to do alchemy. And the, and the beautiful thing about what's happening is that collectively we are transforming. And what used to be something that tended to only happen to individuals, which is everyone listening, has, has a point in their life where it's the quote-unquote on the bathroom floor crying moment mm-hmm. where nothing is working. Everything feels broken. But the beautiful thing is every single human listening to this right now got through it. And I I feel like what's happening with the collective is the moment we got the internet, we truly brought like the, so it's almost like before the internet, we're a child that has no consciousness, like no ego, like we can't see ourselves. And once we got the internet, it's like the collective awareness was born Mm -hmm. and it's going through its teenage stage. And the teenage stage is when you really start to be confronted by the world that your stories about how big you are, how important you are, how powerful you are, get fucking destroyed. Like for me, I thought I was gonna be an NBA basketball player. And then Mm -hmm. I tore my rotator cuff when I was in high school. And it took me four years to let that old story die. And I was overweight, I was depressed, I was passive aggressive. I wasn't courageous with my truth with people. I didn't know how to open my heart. I was suffering. And I think that as a collective, we are churning through that like time in people's lives between like 18 and 22, where you really have to confront the fact that 
you are not what you thought you were. And in order to become who you could be, you're going to have to let a lot of you die. And mm-hmm. it's happening now. And I think it's dope. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love that. And, and the idea of that kind of the internet being this collective consciousness reminds me of, uh, I think Pierre de, de, de Chardin talked about the noosphere. And it's almost like we brought that into, into being with the internet. And I, I feel like this theme exactly. is, a, is a great segue to a post that you wrote recently on the myth of depression, which I can't do yeah. justice to here, but you essentially dismantle the broken Western narrative of depression being purely the result of of low serotonin levels as if we're like these machines with faulty parts and you offer a more holistic perspective that's rooted in Jungian psychology and you suggest that the root of these ailments and maybe even chronic pain lies in what you talk about being greater alignment with our true nature which will as you kind of say there will involve facing up to some of our internal shadows or past traumas so could you speak to this theme a little more and your thoughts on what you believe is genuinely required for those who've been diagnosed with lifelong mental disorders to begin to heal themselves. Yeah. So this is the current thing that I'm the most passionate about and I appreciate you bringing it up and I'm going to get on my fucking soapbox for a moment and see if I can articulate this for people. So excellent. Depression is a word that we have given to a set of experiences. And Carl Jung has this idea that um, there are what are called ions, and ions are the gods of the time. They're the dominant stories that a culture lives by. And Carl Jung has a quote, men do not have ideas, ideas have men. And the idea there is that when you live a, a story, especially if it's unconscious, it possesses you. And the two major ions or aeons when it comes to the way the west looks at mental disorders is that it's materialism and consumerism and the idea is that you are a machine and if you're not working properly it's because the machine is not basically calibrated the way that it should be in order to fix it you have to consume you have to take something and that thing will do it for you And the ultimate manifestation of those two aeons is the pills that we give Mm -hmm. people for mental disorders. Now, this is a really important thing to articulate, and it's something that I will continue to try to hone. But the DSM is the Diagnostic and and Statistic Manual that all psychiatrists use to diagnose mental disorders. The thing about the DSM is every single thing in there, we do not have clear biological evidence for what is going wrong in the body to create that mental disorder. They're all hypotheses because of the way the, mo- the way healthcare works is that, or the way Western medicine works is that if someone discovered the pathology, if someone actually discovered the mechanism in the biology that created it, it would be redefined as a disease. Mm-hmm. And this happened with, this happened with, syphilis that it used to be seen as a mental disorder Mm. and then a a researcher was able to find the biological pathology that caused it and the moment that was found it no longer was a mental disorder it becomes an actual disease so when you know that the dsm is a collection of hypotheses Mm. that there is something biologically going wrong and that it manifests in this way 
but there's no evidence for that. It's a hypothesis. And when you actually look at the DSM and you look at how psychiatrists <clears throat> diagnose people with mental disorders, they basically, they're surveys. And if you have, you know, five out of 11 of these symptoms for a specific amount of time, we will say that you are depressed. But when you look at the actual symptoms, they're all symptoms that you have experienced at some point. Mm -hmm. But they say that the moment it goes from four to five, you're depressed. And if you're depressed, we're going to give you a pill. And so mm -hmm. that already is an interesting thing to know about how the whole game works. Now, when it comes specifically to SSRIs, the idea is that if you're depressed, it means that you have low serotonin. And if you take an SSRI, that improves the amount of serotonin in your brain, and then you won't be depressed. What a researcher from Harvard, who is one of the leading Western experts on the placebo effect, found when one of his undergrads told him for his PhD paper, he wanted to study the relationship between the placebo effect and SSRIs. And so um, this researcher named Irving Kirsch uh, began doing this research with his undergraduate, and he looked at the, I think, the 11 most robust studies that have been done about the effect of SSRIs on depression, and he did what's called a meta-analysis, where he put them all together and looked at the, at the data. Because he was an expert on the placebo effect, he weighed the effects with a new group of people who are depressed and this new group. So you have four groups that are being studied. People who get SSRIs, people who get a placebo. That's what normal studies will do. But because he's an expert in the placebo effect, he added two more groups. One group gets no SSRIs, but they go to psychotherapy. And the fourth group does nothing. They get nothing. And when he weighed these two groups with the two classic groups that were in all 11 of these studies, what he found is that the effect of improvement on depression from SSRI when properly controlled for the placebo effect has no clinically significant effect on improving depression. Mm. That when you properly weigh the placebo effect, the placebo effect and the effect of the antidepressants mm -hmm. are the same. But he goes further. If you look at any study that has been done where instead of using an SSRI, you give people any pill that has a physiological effect, such as if you give people amphetamines or opiates or antipsychotics um, because, or uh, disassociatives, because all of those pills, hold on. So you give those pills to people and you tell them that this will help your depression or you're getting a placebo effect because they all, after a couple of weeks, will create side effects that the person who took the pill will experience. Mm -hmm. They know that they have the active drug instead of the placebo. Mm -hmm. And this causes a boosted effect. What he found in these studies with, the, with things like Adderall, opiates, et cetera, they had the same improvement on depression as SSRIs, but they do not do the same chemical change in the brain. Mm. And so what he, what he got from that is this is evidence of what's called an active placebo effect. And an active placebo is when 
you believe more deeply that you have the thing that works because there is some effect happening in the body. Mm. It goes even further than this. There is a thing called SSREs, which do the opposite of SSRIs. Instead of increasing the amount of serotonin in the brain, it decreases it. Mm. SSREs have the same improvement on depression as SSRIs. What that proves to me without a shadow of a fucking doubt, and I would be willing to go on stage and debate any professional who claims that SSRIs are improving depression because it's increasing serotonin in the brain. I think that that myth is completely broken. Mm. Now to add on top of that, the majority of people who take SSRIs after a couple of months have to either take more, well, no, they, they have to take more because the effects start to wear off or the positive effects start to wear off. But there are real side effects to SSRIs. Like three out of four people who have it have sexual dysfunction. Mm-hmm. If you're elderly, your, your rate of all-cause mortality goes up. There's a whole bunch of side effects. So mm-hmm. I could continue to go, but I think that that sets the point home that mm-hmm. I believe that the idea that depression is the result of low serotonin in the brain, and if you put more serotonin in the brain, then you will heal your depression, is completely fucking broken. Mm. My hypothesis is that depression is the response of a human nervous system that is properly working, where your soul is telling your ego you are not living the life that we are calling you to live. And some people might say that that's blaming the victim, but it also puts the power into your hands. So for example, if you're in a relationship that you know is not the relationship that you are called to, and you're working a job that you know is not the job that you are called to, and you know you don't take care of your body the way your body asks you to take care of it, and you aren't dealing with your friends in a way that you feel you are in integrity and truth, you should feel depressed. That is a evolutionarily adaptive response that you are not in alignment with what your soul is asking you to do. And so I believe that the way to get through any mental illness is to begin to learn how to listen to the whisper of your soul and then to cultivate the courage to act on it daily. The one caveat that I want to offer is because billions of dollars have been spent to weave the magic into our culture that most people believe, oh, if I take this pill, I will feel better. The placebo effect works. So if you're severely depressed to the point that you can't fucking get out of bed, it's okay to take SSRIs to get you to the where the placebo effect is real, like you will feel better for a short amount of time, that can get you going. And then you have to begin to re and to recalibrate and transform your life to bring it more into alignment with what your soul is asking you to do. And so I think the solution to depression is to essentially embody and live the hero's journey. Mm. Wow, that's... That's so fucking powerful. And what what came up for me as you were talking about the SSRI studies was I went through a fairly intense period of grief a couple of years ago. And 
the symptoms completely match that same um, survey that the doctors take, but you're not prescribed any yep. antidepressants. If you go through grief, it just needs to kind of be left to run its course. And part of the reason that this, this topic and these questions are so alive for me is about two and a half years ago, my fiance had been diagnosed with bipolar before we met and she ended up taking her own life by overdosing on her own medication on the, the uh, lamotrigine that she was prescribed. And I still have friends who are regularly taking these drugs and other medications yeah. to manage their, their mood swings. And I think like you, I feel really compelled to find ways to, to support and to kind of offer modalities and practices that can be alternatives. And that kind of brings me to um, one of the ideas that I'm really grateful to you for introducing to me some time ago, which was this idea of internal family systems. And oh Whitman, yeah, and there's there's a poet called Walt Whitman who um, he he talks about I contain multitudes. And for listeners yep. who might be encountering these ideas for the first time, the link to to that that post, the life changing magic of journaling, will be in the show notes. But could you give a a primer to those who who've maybe yet to break up their psyche into like a motley cast of characters and, and maybe share some of the benefits that you personally derive from facilitating this dialogue between them when you go through challenges or triggers yourself? Absolutely amazing questions. The first thing I want to touch on is what you talked about with grief, which is one of the most mind-blowing things about the whole depression fucking debacle is mm. there's a thing that was introduced into the, so we're currently on the fifth version of the DSM. Mm. In the second version of the DSM, they introduced a thing called the grief exception, exactly no. because of what you wow. articulated. No way. And huh. No, so check this out. It, it, it gets real fucked up real quick. So <laughs> um, in the second version of the DSM, the grief exception was put into it, which basically said, if someone you love has died, you're allowed to feel these feelings for one year. And then on one day after that, if you still have the feelings, you're now depressed. Anyway. But in version three, because there were a bunch of people being like, well, if That's fucked up. <laughs> this is something that the human or if this is something that the human does because they're grieving, then is their brain messed up? And it started a debate. So in the third version, they reduced the one year window to three months. And then in the fourth version, they reduced the three month to, to two weeks. And then in the last version, in the fifth version, they got rid of it completely because it goes against the idea that depression has to do with the machine being broken, mm. as opposed to this is the human nervous system responding to something in its life. Mm. It, they got rid of it. So if you had gone to a doctor today, who was using the DSM-5, and it was the day after your fiancé took her life, you mm. would have been prescribed SSRIs. Wow. That is fucked. It's wow. fucked. Yeah. It shows you that it's almost like these emotions we feel are adaptive, period. So that's one thing that I wanted to share that is also incredibly important, I think, for mm. people when it comes to understanding this. You are not broken. You are being called to transform. That's mm -hmm. how I see this. But, and this segues really elegantly into this parts idea. So the fact seems to be 
that the way the human organism or the psyche functions is that you are a multitude. You are a collection of parts. And you can look at your language to see that this is true. Everyone listening has gone through experiences where afterwards they said something like, that wasn't me. I don't know what came over me. I had a meltdown. I'm not like that. All of those are examples of you just went through an experience where one of these other parts, what I call, took the throne. Mm -hmm. um, if you've seen the movie Split, that's a really good representation of what's going on in your psyche. And the way that I see it is your psyche or your conscious mind is a throne room. And whoever is mm -hmm. on the throne is the part of you that your body acts out. And the fact is, wherever you had trauma, wherever something happened that felt intensely undesirable or intensely desirable, there's a part of you that almost gets frozen at that point in time. And it becomes a character. And that character will seek to do whatever it thinks is best to avoid that feeling or to get that feeling again. And internal family systems is a psychological model that basically articulates you have an inner child and the inner child has needs and everyone growing up will have experiences where their needs are not met. And when the needs are not met, the child tells a story and whatever the story that the child told in response to that need not being met, it's like they create a golem and a golem mm -hmm. is a mythological character of it's, it's, it's a spell that you can make to create an entity that will carry out a single task forever. That's what these parts are like. Mm -hmm. And so for example, um, for me specifically, um, I learned very young because of some family stuff, you can't trust women. And so growing up, uh, especially in relationships, there's this part of me that when I don't feel safe in the relationship, I will retreat. I will withdraw my love. I will avoid. And I call this part of me Samson based off of the character from the Bible who got mm -hmm. betrayed by, what is her name? Delilah. Um, anyways, Delilah. Yes. Okay. So for example, if I'm in a relationship and I feel that there's this part of me that starts to like try to get me to pull away, I will literally journal and I will write out the name Samson and then I will basically call him forward and have him tell me why he's acting up. And he's almost always acting up to protect the inner child. The idea in internal family systems is that you have an inner child and then all these other parts are like guards and they're trying to protect the inner child from re-feeling whatever feelings they had in the past. Mm -hmm. You have these parts inside of you already. And if you're unconscious to them, they're in your shadow. And if you have patterns in your life that give you results that you don't like, that is evidence that one of these parts are working in the shadow. And one of the most powerful ways to transform is to bring these parts into awareness and then to begin a dialogue with them and then to come to compromises where you hear them, you see them, and then you honor them by hearing what they have to say, but then choosing to act it out in the world in a way that is for the good of all. And the way that I see this mythologically is the king archetype. The king is essentially a being who chooses to rule over a, a kingdom. And a true king, not a tyrant, a true king 
is a bridge between the kingdom and God, like mm-hmm. the divine organizing force of the universe. A tyrant believes he is the king, and a true king knows that he is a bridge. And everyone inside of them has an inner king or an inner queen. And if you want the life that you know that you are being called to do, you have to cultivate that part of you that is a king or a queen. And it needs to begin to see and to honor and to create dialogue with all the other parts inside of you, but then to issue a decree that is for the good of the kingdom or the queendom. So there's this idea in mythology that like a king or a queen will hear the concerns of the kingdom and they'll come to them, they'll give their grievances, and the king has to issue some type of order that is for the good of the entire kingdom. And if they do that badly, the kingdom's upset. And if they do it well, mythologically, the kingdom flourishes and things unfold and grow and it's beautiful. And that's kind of a primer to the parts idea. Mm, I find this stuff just endlessly fascinating. And one of the one of the questions that I think is most alive for me right now is this idea of mature masculine archetypes. And for myself, I think I felt somewhat emotionally disconnected from my dad and certainly felt as if I lacked a real male role model or a lived example of what it means to show up in my masculinity in a healthy way. And (laughs) curiously, it's actually on my desk right now. One of the books that I've recently finished reading that, that you recommended a while ago is this Jungian book, King, Warrior, Magician, Lover which covers the the four it's it's brilliant it's it's absolutely incredible and it, it covers the four major archetypes of the adult male psych and it's it's becoming a lens through which i'm starting to view the world and my own actions through and i'd love to hear from you how did reading this book just based on, on your reaction how did it change or inform your lens on the world and how you aspire to show up today It changed my fucking life. And I love the questions you are asking because all of these things are the things that are the most alive for me right now. So this is synchronicity. This is God. Gang, gang. Thank you. King Warrior, Magician, Lover is the book that I recommend to every single male that I ever meet who is asking me basically like, what does it mean to truly be like a man? Mm. And the idea is that There are four major archetypes in the mature masculine psyche. The first one is the king, and that's what we've been talking about. The king archetype organizes and blesses. And so what that means is that the part of you that brings order to the psyche and to your life, that's king energy. Also, the part that sees the beauty in yourself and in other people and articulates it where you actually bless people with the way that you speak because you are in love and in truth, you actually heal people. And that's one of the Mm -hmm. most important things about the king is the king sees other people and blesses them by articulating the beauty and the magic Mm -hmm. and the God that it sees in other people. Mm -hmm. The next one is the warrior. The warrior is the part of you that when properly integrated is what maintains your boundaries. The shadow side of the warrior is the murderer. It's And it's happening all over our culture right now. Like the cops that kill, they're in their shadow expression of the warrior. They're trying. Like everyone here is trying their best to live in a way to not suffer. 
but people get caught in the shadows and the shadow one of the shadow expressions of the warrior is you know the murderer and the pole or the opposite side of the warrior is the weakling it's the it's the part of you that maintains no boundaries and then there's the magician the magician is the thing that manifests it's the thing that creates it's the thing that takes the will of the king and the warrior and actually transforms the world with it and that's probably the archetype that is that out of the men in the western culture that's the one that probably is expressed in its positive aspect the most we mm-hmm. seem to be very disconnected from an integrated warrior an integrated king and then the thing that is the most lacking for men is an integrated lover mm-hmm. so the integrated lover that's the thing that like cries when it reads beautiful poetry it's the part of you that can completely merge with a tree in nature it's the part that for me was unlocked with psychedelics done responsibly mm-hmm. one of the shadow expressions of the lover is addiction it's the thing that just chases and chases and chases to feel good to feel good to feel good the way to be an integrated man at least what has been most useful for me is to use this idea of these four archetypes to guide me and to be in balance and, mm. and that book coupled with the way of the superior man and mm-hmm. iron john those are the bibles for my masculinity and since reading them and integrating them in my life i've never had better relationships with women i've never had better relationships with strong men I've never had better relationships with my family, with my friends and with myself. Mm. Wow. It's it's so powerful and I was just thinking to to what you were saying about about the warrior archetype and if we were to apply this to what we're seeing in the world right now with the Black Lives Matter movement, I've been thinking about how easy it is to demonize the policeman who killed George Floyd and I've attempted to be kind of radically compassionate and I genuinely believe that if if I had the exact same DNA, the same upbringing, the same life experiences, I would have done exactly the same thing and that this shadow lies in all of us to some degree or other. And so I'm I'm curious to hear like maybe to go a bit deeper on what was the shadow that was being expressed and what might be some of the ways that it could be embraced and integrated for for all of us. Yeah. Um so each of the four masculine archetypes they start in boyhood and there's a boyhood version of each of those four archetypes. And um what I find specifically when it comes to the shadow expression of the warrior that leads to murder and mayhem is because there's a complete denial of the lover. That the mm. thing that balances the warrior is the lover. and it's the lover that when you look into the eyes of another human you can see god is coming through them and that they are your brother or sister and they are trying their best with what they have with where they're at to not feel pain and to feel happiness and fulfillment and beauty and like all of us have a wounded inner child and those police officers that act that way inside of them is a terrified boy who learned at some point 
the way that I can keep my terror at bay is to have power and it's to have power over other people because I can't trust people because people hurt me. Mm -hmm. And a few percentage points of those people find their way where they have a gun and they are dangerous. And I think that the systematic change will start in families. I really believe, well, truly it starts within the individual heart. And if you have hate for any group of people, if you have hate for any category of human, you have a part of you that you have casted into the shadow that you don't recognize is also within you and you're projecting that onto them and it allows you to treat them less than human. Mm -hmm. It is hate that allows people to murder in the way that these cops murdered. And one of the things that I'm seeing is a lot of people's response to the cops is the same energy that leads to murder. Mm -hmm. But the people who have that anger don't have a gun and don't have an opportunity to enact that anger. Like I know mm -hmm. when I watched that video, I felt the part of me that I call Cain, you know, mm -hmm. the part in, in the biblical story, the brother who murdered his brother. I wanted to kill that cop. I could feel it in my body that in that moment, I wanted to murder him. But I know that that is not the way because murder perpetuates murder. And when I look at those cops, I see a terrified boy with a gun. Mm. And the terror began in childhood. The terror very likely began with their father. And it's like we all have generational traumas that were passed down through us by the way that our parents interacted with us. Like for me, both of my parents' parents abused them. My dad had to physically fight his dad off of his mom from beating her when he was like nine. Mm. And he beat me a couple of times, but I know that like the amount he passed on was a fraction of what he got. And I know that when I have children, I will pass on an even smaller fraction. And it begins with us. And then it begins with how we relate to the people around us. And we all have Cain inside of us. And that's kind of where my thoughts are on that. As you're talking, I'm, I'm feeling some emotions welling up. And I think, I think where I want to go is what you touched on about the the lover almost being the antidote to the shadow warrior and thinking yep. to my own experience the thing that brought me into contact with with the lover and the kind of catalyst to me writing poetry and feeling that sense of oneness and connection was the process of grief and it was it was diving into the pain mm. and I I love the Rumi quote the cure for the pain is in the pain and and, and Leonard Cohen talks about there's a crack, a crack in everything, and that's how the light gets in. And I feel like that is such a, yep. that's just such a powerful message to share that these, by having the courageous curiosity to go into our pain, those are the things that will connect us to the archetype, which is the healing force required to, to end what we're, what we're seeing right now. And this is, this is in, in some way a nice segue to where I wanted to go next, which was this there was an idea that you discussed with our mutual friend, Corey Allen, that really hit home for me. And you guys were kind of theorizing that we will have this, this core wound in life of sorts and that 
providing we learn how to work through it and alchemize the pain, that wound becomes a sacred portal through which we're able to share our gift with the world. And as someone who has an overactive mind, I know that historically I've not allowed myself to feel the challenging emotions and it required that pain of grief to break me open and the various modalities of plant medicine and breath work and meditation and journaling. And through this process of being almost apprenticed to surrender, I felt like I was broken open or as if my, my acorn was destroyed to borrow Jung's metaphor. And so I wonder if, could you share any experiences or traumas from your past that you feel have become like the sacred wound through which you're now able to serve your medicine to the world and access your dharma and build your, your cathedra? You ask great fucking questions, brother. Thank you so much. I can truly feel how much you have felt into preparing for this podcast, and it's an honor. Mm -hmm. So to answer the question, um, the passionate rant that you just heard from me about depression, that's my medicine. And it came from the, the human that I loved most as a child was my mother, and she had depression all throughout my childhood. And I remember days where she would come home from work, she would go into her room, she wouldn't cook for us, she would close the door, and she would lay in bed all day. And there were weekends where she would lay in bed all weekends. There were sometimes days where I would come home from school and she would be crying at the table, hooking at bills. And as a child, sometimes I could say the right thing, or I could bring home something from school, or I could talk about something that I did, and she would genuinely light up for a moment. And I told myself the story, I can make this human feel better if I can say the right things. And my wound was that I felt like I had to save people through how I speak. And it led me to go get a degree in cognitive psychology. Mm. And it's what has made me obsessed with trying to understand depression for the last 20 years. And you know, it took time for me to realize that I can't save anybody. I can only be the best version of myself and share what I do to get there. And the people who are ready will follow and the people who aren't won't. And then that's okay. But the thing that I know I am going to give the world for the rest of my life is this new story about mental health. Mm -hmm. And the root of this purpose came from my wounding that the human that I love felt like she was taken from me over and over and over again by this thing that I couldn't see mm. that would make her catatonic sometimes. Mm -hmm. And that is an example of whatever wounds you the deepest is the potential from which you can, you can give the greatest medicine. And it also is what makes you intensely human. Like mm. what's beautiful about grief is that grief is the feeling of love loss it is evidence that you love mm -hmm. like the core of grief is felt evidence that you love and the deeper that you can sit in your grief the deeper your compassion for human existence becomes and you know it does bring to life the lover because you can't deny grief mm -hmm. and grief is evidence that you love Mm. This is so powerful. Um, and it's, it's interesting that you talk about 
that being an access point to being human. And I'm, I'm in the early stages of writing a book proposal with the working title of How to Human. And as I was researching this, I, I came across a post of yours that nicely kind of brings us full circle to what we were talking about earlier, but the post was Prometheus Unchained. And I'd highly recommend anyone listening mm. to read it in full, but I wanted to dive into the Promethean pyramid that you drew at the end. And at the top of that pyramid, you'd written that your, your ethos is to be the rainmaker. So could yep. you share for listeners what exactly does that mean to you and why does it deserve a place at the summit of this pyramid? And what are some of the psychotechnologies or rituals for self-transformation that you believe will help you to get there and fully embody that ethos? Beautiful question. So um, one of Jung's favorite stories that he shared at almost every lecture he gave in the last couple of years of his life is this story about the rainmaker. And the story goes something like this. He had a Westerner friend who was a scientist who went somewhere in China during the time that he was alive around like 1910 or something. And this uh, Westerner went to a village that had been going through a drought for a couple of weeks and the crops were dying, the animals were dying and the people were stressed out. The Westerner goes to the chief of this village and basically asks, what are you gonna do? And the chief says, don't worry, the rainmaker is coming. And the Westerner is, doesn't know what this means. And so he chills for a couple of days and eventually this old man comes into the village and he watches all the elders of the village go meet this man and there's like talking going on and they lead this old man to a hut at the edge of the village. And the old man goes inside the hut and he closes the door and all the elders go back home. And the Westerner is kind of confused. And three days go by where this old man doesn't come out of the hut and nobody goes into it. And then at the end of the third day, it begins to rain. It begins to pour. And once the rain has gone through all night, the rainmaker walks out and the Westerner is the first person at the door. And he asks the rainmaker, what did you do? And the rainmaker said, I didn't do anything. I came from a part of the land that was in the Tao. And because it was in the Tao, it did as it should. When I came here, this land was out of order and it infected me and I was out of order. And in order to put it back into order, I had to bring myself into order. And once I brought myself into order, the land came into order and then the land did as it should and it rained. Hmm. And the idea here, and I think this is the core archetype that is expressed through the miracles that people like Jesus or Muhammad or Buddha create in the world. And it's that, there is a song happening inside of you and around you at all times. And if you learned how to listen to it and then flow with it, you manifest miracles. And my highest intention in my life is to learn every day how to listen to that whisper inside of me so that I can bring my order to the environment that I'm in I can hear what the song of the environment needs from me. Mm. I can then allow that to come through me. And I watch it happen almost every day, at least once. I don't have to be anything. I just have to feel what wants to be. And people weep, people laugh, things come together, synchronicities happen. 
And I truly believe that that is the story of the Tao. And if you can find the Tao, you manifest what your destiny is because it what wants to be. I, I love that. And for me, it, it speaks to this, um, this metaphor that we are almost like human instruments and that our task is to, to tune ourselves up to allow that music to come through us. Or as I think it's Paul Selig talks about seeing other people's best songs until they remember the words. And it's, it's such a beautiful, Amen. such a beautiful image. And I guess I've, I've been wondering, or, um, I've been wondering what a, like a modern day vision quest might look like one that is designed to break people open in this way and help them to tune up their, their human instruments. And so are there any kind of daily or weekly rituals that you think help with this process of tuning, tuning up our, our psyches and tuning up our, our bodies and our consciousness? I will share what my process has been that has brought me to the point where I can hear this. Mm-hmm. For me, it began with journaling. And I got the book, The Artist's Way, when I was about 25, the day after my first major relationship ended. And I had a back spasm so bad that I couldn't walk for five days. And I was just wrecked. Mm-hmm. And I started reading this book. And I gave i put myself through a spiritual initiation which once i got that book i made a spiritual commitment every day first thing in the morning i'm going to write three pages longhand and i had this big journal it wasn't small it took me almost an hour every day and i was going to do it every day for the 12 weeks that that book because that book is is basically a course inside of a book and it's 12 weeks Mm -hmm. and i did it every day Every Sunday, I would read the next chapter of The Artist's Way. She gives you homework assignments. I would do them. And that led me to beginning to begin interacting with my dreams. So mm-hmm. journaling led me to dreams. And then once I started interacting with my dreams, and I got deeper into Jung, and I started to learn how to communicate and understand the language of dreams, I did that dance for years. And then the third part was making a spiritual commitment to speak and act my truth in love. And because I still journal every day and I watch my dreams every night, I, I, have, I had begun to hone my ability to at least attempt to speak the truth. And then once I made that spiritual commitment, I slowly started to learn what it felt like in my body to articulate my truth. And that mm-hmm. took a couple of years. And then the fourth one was basically being willing to lead with my heart instead of my mind. Mm. And then once I chose to begin to lead with my heart, it became harder to speak my truth because I was afraid of X, Y, and Z. But because I had made the spiritual commitment, because I journaled every day, and because I listened to my dreams. And once you start to listen to your dreams, your dreams will let you know when you're fucking up. (laughs) And all of that, those four principles regulate me now in a way where my current dance is I have an altar in front of my bed. I don't have a TV in my room. Instead of being told what to think, I've created a space where I get to create how I want to think. Mm. And I have this tapestry above my altar that is this like Peruvian psychedelic blanket 
where there's this tree in the middle and the tree has eyes. And I sit down in front of it every morning and every night and I look that thing in the eye and I really believe that I'm communicating with my God. Mm-hmm. And I basically energetically say like, I see you, I'm showing up today. Mm-hmm. And then I, and then those four practices, journaling, paying attention to my dreams, a spiritual commitment to speaking and acting my truth and love, and then to lead with my heart, that, has, that is what has brought me to this place where I can sometimes taste what it's like to be the rainmaker. Mm-hmm. So if you made that a spirit vision or a, um, a vision quest, it would be some prolonged period of time where you have a spiritual commitment to begin journaling. And then once you've journaled to the point where you can start to be honest with yourself, you begin to learn how to listen and communicate with your dreams. And then once you've done that, you basically make a spiritual commitment to only speak and act your truth to the best of your ability and to do it from your heart. And then you come back into the world and you stumble and stumble and keep getting up. <laughs> right. And, and on, on that note, um, so I've bought The Artist's Way. I think I own about three copies. And I have, I've never made it past week eight, I think. I kind of have this commitment and then at some point, life gets in the way and I feel like I'm just writing out the same old like pointless stream of consciousness and it ends up falling by the wayside. So the first part of the question is for people maybe like myself who have a lot of enthusiasm in the beginning, but then feel like it's difficult to justify from you know the standpoint of like productivity, spending an hour, an hour a day journaling with no fixed outcome. What would you say to people like that? And secondly, you mentioned that part of your journey that took two years was getting from your almost your head to your heart and it strikes me that journaling whilst very yeah. powerful is potentially not an embodied practice so do you have any daily rituals that help you access the wisdom of your body and maybe get out of your own head in some way yeah so the answer to the first question is um learn how to be a fucking warrior <laughs> like that's truly the thing that comes to mind and I've always, for a long time, I had a lot of resistance to physically embodying aggression because I felt like it was bad. But yeah. I am fucking aggressive with my mind. Mm. And when I choose to do something, like, and I believe it, I will fucking do it. And I don't know if that's a thing that can be taught. So, no, it for sure can be taught. One way that it can be taught is let life fucking destroy you and you have to see what you're truly made of mm. or the other way is instead of waiting for the flood to come to you choose to be a warrior and really i think it's about choosing mm. and what that means to me is like when i make a commitment to myself god is watching me i'm going to show the fuck up like if if it's i have to write three pages in the morning like the truth is, you know you can do it. There is no excuse. You know that you can. It's just a matter, it's just a matter of whether or not you choose to. Mm-hmm. And discipline is something that can be cultivated. And like for me, if I feel like the story of Viktor Frankl and his book, Man's Search for Meaning, that's the ultimate recalibration for the part of me that doesn't want to be a warrior. Yeah, that it's a slap man, in the face in Auschwitz can Mm -hmm. write the sentence, 
the last of the human freedoms is man's ability to choose his attitude in any given situation, I can write some fucking pages. Now, the thing is, I don't feel like I should write the pages. I have chosen to write the pages. So I will write the pages, period. Now, the reason I, the reason I committed so intensely to it is because my life had fallen apart. Mm-hmm. I was working at Chipotle. No, I was working at an insurance company that I hated. My girlfriend left because I didn't know how to be honest with her. Mm-hmm. And my back was so fucked up that I couldn't walk. And I discovered that the back stuff was almost all emotional and the artist way helped me uncover that. Mm. But to answer your first question, it's learn how to be a warrior and learning how to be a warrior. You can read stories about warriors. You can watch movies about warriors, but it comes down to pick an uncomfortable thing and do it every day. And the story that I believe I'm doing is I'm genuinely cultivating my ability to be a fucking hero. Mm. And I want to be a hero. Like my ego is huge, man. And in order for me to um, manifest the human I know I'm capable of being, I know that I have to hone my discipline and my mastery. And so I do it. Mm. And what was your second question? Just around any practices that you have from getting from your head to your heart and escaping kind of the the monkey mind and, and making this more embodied yeah so i don't know when it started but um at some point i learned how to really listen to people and when you begin to really listen you're not thinking you're just raw experiencing and then once they finish talking you respond intuitionally. And I don't know how to teach that other than imagine. I, I, I don't know when it started, but basically you can play the game for a week. And the game is every human that ever speaks to you this week is a messenger from God. And if you learned how to listen, they have something to tell you that is exactly what you need to hear in order to further along walk your path. And then it becomes about like really listening to people. I think where it started for me is I read a book called Prometheus Rising that blew my fucking mind. And it basically helped me understand there is no objective reality. Everybody is experiencing reality through their model of the world. Mm -hmm. So every time you meet a human, you are meeting a new world. Mm -hmm. And there's this part of me that like, when I meet people, I'm trying to see their world. And if I'm trying to see their world, I'm not worried about what I think. I'm genuinely curious in the God that they are because they've created a world and the Mm -hmm. world is what they believe. And once you really start to listen and you start to, attempt to only speak the truth you start to have this felt embodied experience when you can feel what you're saying is either what you genuinely believe in the moment or it's a game and Mm. i'm at the point now where it viscerally feels so uncomfortable to not respond genuinely that i'm almost now a prisoner to that feeling of feeling like I'm authentically expressing. Now that I'm thinking about it, what, what really helped 
is I started microdosing LSD about two years ago. Mm. And that allowed me to feel my feelings more because, because I'm masculine and because I'm so mind dominant, it was easy for me not to feel my feelings. But once I started microdosing, I could feel more deeply like, oh, there's a thing in my it, body it's, that it's is crazy. communicating. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And so I think that coupled with all the practices that I was already doing, that that helped me hone that more. Mm. It's interesting you say that I've um, recently started a microdosing protocol myself in the last 30 days. And it's, it definitely lets you know when there's something there that needs to be moved through. And I've been doing a lot more breath work to kind of move through some of the emotions if and when they arise. And yeah, it's like a, just a, a brighter spotlight maybe to see the, the stuff that might otherwise go unnoticed. And this, um, I, was, I was thinking about some of the times that I felt like the writing has kind of flowed through me in some ways. And I thought back to a time last year when I did a, a 10 day vision quest in Nepal. And I won't go into the full details, but essentially on the final night after four days of fasting and solitude and three nights of ayahuasca, I felt compelled to write this series of letters, which I then offered into a fire. And the last letter, which completely took me by surprise, was I, I started writing Dear Death and essentially acknowledging that my life up until that point, I'd mostly viewed death as this abstract idea and a realization that any relationship based on denial is, is probably going to be unhealthy. So I'm curious if death is something that you think about much in your life and do you feel like there is value in journaling or contemplating on it? Great question, 100%. The reason that I'm able to be as intense and passionate and courageous to the degree that I am is because of my relationship with death. I think mm -hmm. I was... 21 maybe and i remember taking some mushrooms and walking around a park and i was listening to a song on repeat and i had this vision where um there were millions of people on a beach and they were all building sandcastles and they were all really fucking invested in the sandcastle that they were making and behind them was a tsunami and I just had this, like, the core feeling that I feel at, in the depth of all my psychedelic experiences when I really go deep is this sense of tragic beauty. Mm -hmm. And it feels to me like the essence of what the human condition feels like to me. Mm -hmm. And the tragedy is that we suffer so much more than we have to because of the stories that we tell ourselves and the beauty is that this is the human expression to just want to dance and to hug and to love mm -hmm. in the face of the tsunami coming. Like that is what inspires me to, I am, I am happy to carry the burden of my potential every day and to do everything that I can to try to manifest it every day because I feel if I can make a beautiful sandcastle that inspires other people to take pride and to try to express beautiful sandcastles, and I can do it in a way that all the people around me who 
experience me as I go about making my sandcastle enjoy life more because of it, that that is the best offering that I can give to the collective because we are all on the beach. We are all making a sandcastle. Mm. And the sandcastle seems to be the thing that we get to do while we're here on the beach. Mm. And because I know I am going to die, and I think about it often, that's what allows me to like, I am going to give my motherfucking best effort every day and I am happy to feel the dissatisfaction some days when I feel that I don't do it so that I can offer the most beautiful sandcastle to the collective before entropy eats of us. <laughs> That's beautiful. Uh, I'm glad I asked. <laughs> wow. Um, uh, fuck. So just before, before we wrap up, I have a few rapid fire questions for you. Um, your answers don't need to be. They don't need to be rapid. Um, the first one is our mutual friend Corey suggested that I ask you to offer a revised definition of the word ego. <laughs> the ego is not the enemy. The ego <laughs> is a wolf. And if you beat it and starve it and deny it, it will bite you. But if you feed it and tame it and guide it, it will hunt with you. And the only way to manifest your soul's call is to have a tamed ego that hunts with you. Nice. Second question. How might you describe the process of grief when viewed through the lens of the soul or the higher self? Grief to me is the active process of digesting attachments to love. And the way that I experience it in my body is when I cry. So I, there's two types of crying. There's the type of crying that when you're crying, you're repeating a word or an image to make yourself feel worse. That's actually not true. And then there's the type of crying where it's a surrender to the beauty of truth. Mm -hmm. And when I weep, like when I wept about the death of a relationship, there is this part of me that is my soul that is smiling and laughing and saying, good job, good. I'm so proud of you, boy. And my ego is weeping and shuddering. But it feels like every tear that I shed in that realization of the truth, I'm releasing an attachment. Mm. And there's this thing that I share with some of my close friends and it's, I love my tears. Mm. I love my tears. I love crying when it's that beholding beauty or truth in a way that moves me. And grief is the digestion of love that didn't get an opportunity to be expressed. Hmm. This is a beautiful segue. The third question was, when was the last time that you cried either tears of joy or sorrow? Because I tell the truth, um, something came up in my relationship this past weekend 
And I wept on my girlfriend's shoulder to the point where her shoulder was soaked. Hmm. Again, powerful segue. Um, I've recently started a new partnership and it feels like jumping on a rocket ship for personal growth. And they're very efficient vehicles for surfacing, yep. our, own sh- surfacing our own shit. And what is something that you've recently learned about yourself or your inner guardians whilst being in partnership? That if I trust the rainmaker. So one of my deepest attachments is I want to be in a way where the person that I love does not experience sadness or pain or grief. And so that is the thing that is most likely to keep me from articulating my full truth. And if I trust the rainmaker, that the beauty that comes from it is greater than what my ego's anticipation of fear can possibly comprehend. And I have to continue to have faith. Why should someone bother to pay attention to their dreams? That is not a rapid fire question. (laughs) (laughs) My, basically it comes down to this. Every idea that you have is a tool. If you use that tool, does it help you live more of the life that you want? Interpreting dreams as if they are messages from the God inside of me to guide my ego has been one of the most useful tools that I have ever picked up, period. Hmm. What might be a journal prompt that you'd prescribe to someone who is looking at the world in despair right now and feeling overwhelmed with the crises that are unfolding? I know that the world I perceive is the world that I create. And if the world feels like it's full of despair, what is one thing that I can do today for someone else that is purely from love and serves them? And will I do it? Hmm. And then finally, um, I consider you as someone who embodies the, the warrior poet archetype. And I was wondering if you would be willing or able to share a poem, either one that you've written or perhaps one that speaks to your life in this moment. Interesting. I don't have any poems memorized, but I know the one that I want to pull up. So let Mm -hmm. me pull it up. Awesome. Okay, it's The Man in the Arena by Roosevelt. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there is no effort without error or shortcoming. 
but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spins himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. Hmm. That's powerful. Okay, so this has been an absolute pleasure. And I want to be respectful of your time as I know you're in the midst of writing two books and a whole bunch of other projects. And I'd sincerely recommend, in fact, request that anyone listening to this carves out a good chunk of time to binge read the 10 articles on your blog and especially sign up for the recently launched Make Your Myth course. Um, where would be the best place for curious humans to do a deeper dive into your work and get involved with some of the stuff that you're making? The best way is to, uh, on Instagram, my handle is my name, Eric Godsey, and my website is also the same, Eric Godsey. And um, I've written probably 80 posts in the last two years that are all like small, you know, best attempts at me offering gems. And then uh, the podcast as well, The Myths That Make Us. Thank you. And I'd like to close with this line from the poet Rilke. And the line is, try to love the questions themselves and live them now. Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live your way into the answer. And so with that in mind, what is the question that you're living yourself right now? And what question might you leave our listeners with? What is the most adaptive human story that I can embody? Beautiful. Well, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you so much. You crushed it, man. This is one of my favorite podcast interviews I've ever been a part of. Thank you so much for how you showed up. Uh, that means a lot. Um, yeah. Thank you, brother. Appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. It would mean a lot to me if you could take a few seconds to open up your podcast app and give Curious Humans a shiny five-star rating. This not only helps more people to find it, but it will help me to get more awesome guests in the future. And if you're not already subscribed, then the Curious Humans newsletter is where I share monthly morsels of interestingness and podcast updates. You can sign up for that at johnny.life. That's J-O-N-N-Y dot life.